Acts chapter 8, I am entitling the message tonight, Three Men and a Baby. (laughs) Three Men and a Baby. The three men are Philip, the evangelist, Simon the magician, and an Ethiopian official. The baby is the church. She's still in the first five years. Probably more of a toddler than a baby, but let's just go with it. She's early in the age. Impressionable, young, trainable. And it strikes me, studying through Acts, how do you teach a people to be the ecclesia? How do you do that? I mean, granted, from day one they were filled with the Spirit of God. So the indwelling Holy Spirit is absolutely key, critical. Without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have a hope of becoming, of being the church. But even being filled with the Holy Spirit, we still got this flesh hanging off our bodies. We still have much to learn. And I want you to remember that as we study through the things that happen in the book of Acts, and, and, and historically speaking, also are happening... For the benefit of the church. God is raising up. He is training up a people. And it's so important to know that because there are things they did not know. Things that you know. Things that I understand. Well, we have 2,000 years of church behind us. That can at times mess things up. That can give us traditions and, and, and things that begin to overtake scripture. That's not a good thing. But on the other hand... We have 2,000 years of experience here. And that is a good thing. And we have the entirety of the Word of God, complete and full and inspired and brought to us. And so we can, we can look back at things. When we don't know what to do, what do we do? We open the Word. We pray. And in the first century, especially in that first decade or so, they prayed. They had the apostles to teach, but they didn't have the Word just to open up. They didn't have phones or texting or email to ask questions of the apostles. They had to go to them. And even the apostles didn't always know what to do. They had to convene councils and and gather together and pray and wait on the Lord and, and seek His answers. So three men and a baby. Now due to a great persecution, the baby is out of the incubator as of chapter 8. The baby is being driven out of Jerusalem. It's one of the rare times where the church is driven. I much prefer for the church to be led. I like being led. I would rather be led by the Spirit. But sometimes we are driven, and not by the Spirit of God, but we are driven at times by persecution. And so we have the church driven out of Jerusalem, driven but not without the key. The key. Several new varieties of cars have come out recently. It's interesting to me. They boast keyless ignition and entry. Well, how does that work? I'm old school. Give me a key. I want something to put in the lock, turn, pop, door opens. Right? Keyless entry. For entry, you no longer have to have a key put in the lock at all. All you have to do is walk up to the car. Now, the key needs to be nearby in a pocket or a purse or whatever, but you walk up the car and it recognizes the key is there and automatically unlocks. Keyless entry. Unbelievable. And on top of that, you have keyless ignition. You sit down in the car. Where do you put the key? There's just a red button. That makes me nervous. What does the button do? 
Is it an ejection seat? I don't know, but you press the button, and if the key is nearby, car starts up. But you still need the key. See, we haven't gotten away from that one yet. The key's got to be in the pocket to unlock the car. It's got to be in the, in the pocket or in the purse or in the car somewhere for the car to start up. It has to recognize the proximity of the key. Why are you talking about keys and babies, Rick? Well, for one thing, babies are great at hiding keys. Babies are great at sometimes misplacing keys. But here's the thing. You can neither unlock nor start up the Word of God in a person's heart without the key. And the key is Jesus. And it answers the question why sometimes even believers misunderstand the Word of God. Why for years I didn't understand many times passages of Scripture that were being read because I didn't have the key. Oh, I had Jesus, but I didn't recognize, didn't realize what Jesus Himself said. You've heard me quote this many times. We're going to quote it many times more, I'm sure. John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures, Jesus says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's what I grew up thinking. You study the Bible because it makes life good. It's like a manual. Training for life now and life to come. It's that, but it's so much more. Jesus says, it is these that testify of me. I'm the point. And if you don't understand that, if you don't have the key, then sometimes it's difficult to unlock what God's trying to say. What the Scriptures are about. Jesus said in John 5.40 to the Pharisees, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Well, they knew their Scriptures, but they didn't see the person in the Scriptures. They didn't have the key of Messiah to turn on the Scriptures in their hearts. And so what happened? Well, Paul would later say in Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. But as Stephen said back at the end of chapter 7, verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. How did you know they didn't keep the law? Because it didn't lead them to Christ. Had they kept the law, it would have led them to Christ. Because that's the point of the law. He's the point of the law. And without Jesus, without the key, not only can you not start up the Word of God in a heart, but the spirit of the law, the, the letter of the law, kills. The spirit gives life. But the letter kills. It is a death sentence without the key. It's like trying to get into a keyless entry car that is rigged to explode if you don't have the key. 2 Corinthians 3.6 The letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. What happens when you lose the keys? You, you can't get the baby where she needs to go. And in the church, when we set aside the key, when we lose the key, when we forget about Jesus as we approach the Scriptures, we ain't going nowhere. The car stops. The hearts stop. We get confused. So we need the key to start the heart. We need the key to unlock the Scriptures. Remember that as we go through this tonight. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Babies and keys, got it? Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That is, putting Stephen to death. And on that day, that is the exact day that we studied last week, the day of the persecution of Stephen, the day of Stephen's great sermon and his martyrdom, his stoning to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Why? 
Why not the apostles? Were they just not willing to go? Were they unwilling to be part of the scattered? Gang, listen, the Jewish council had already tried to cut off the head. And it didn't work. They tried to cut off the head Jesus with his crucifixion. That didn't work. They tried to cut off the head, that is, the leaders of this fledgling community, this baby church, Peter and John. That didn't work. They tried to cut off the heads of the apostles, that is, throwing them into prison. That didn't work. So what do you do? The persecution now turns to trying to discourage the body because they couldn't take care of the head. Persecution breaks out against the average church-going folk, the county clerks, the people who are just trying to follow Jesus in their day-to-day lives. Persecution explodes. But what's wonderful is wherever the baby goes, she just brings joy and the good news. Jesus had already told them, Acts 1.8, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And that's where we are at the beginning of chapter 8. This is part 2 in the three parts of the book of Acts. And chapter 8 we pick up now in Judea and Samaria. We're now moving out. Verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Okay, why is the baby crying? Why the loud lamentation? I I get it. I understand they love Stephen. No doubt he was a beloved disciple in the early fellowship. No doubt they were shocked at what had happened. Could not believe what had taken place. That this man actually was stoned to death simply for preaching truth. I understand that. The tragedy of it, it was shocking. But there may be something else behind this. And it goes to the infancy of the church. It goes to the lack of understanding about some things. There was still much for them to learn. Things that you might take for granted, but they did not know. For example, where do you go when you die? All the way up until then, where do you go when you die? You go to Sheol. Hebrew Scriptures, that's what it taught. You go to Sheol. What Sheol? Holding place for the dead. What then? Well, we hope resurrection. Jesus resurrected. But you know, he's God, so he resurrected, he promised our resurrection, but now Stephen is dead. Stephen's the first, after Christ, there in the church to be dead, killed. What's going to happen to Stephen? And if you die before Christ's return, do you miss out on the kingdom? You just stay dead? And I mean, they didn't have teaching on this yet. Ironically, the chief persecutor, Saul soon to be the Apostle Paul, would become the chief instructor on these very things. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 He wrote to the church in Thessalonica, not long after this, by the way, he said, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Well, right now, they're giving up wild lamentation over Stephen. They are grieving with the best of the grievers. As though there was no hope. But Paul says, listen, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If you die in Jesus, you're going to resurrect just like Jesus. Don't fear. Don't lament. Don't grieve like the rest of the world. Peter would later write, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God of our Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
Our living hope, what is that? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What happens if we die? You'll be raised. Will we miss the kingdom? No, you have an inheritance. And it is ready to be revealed. And so both of those questions that may have perhaps been behind the great lamentation over Stephen, they would be answered. Remember, the church is learning. The church is growing up. What's remarkable is that 2,000 years later, there are Christians who still don't understand these things. That because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we die, our spirits immediately go home to be with the Lord, and none who die in Jesus will miss out on the coming kingdom. The Bible's clear about this. But for now, the chief persecutor, Saul, is on a rampage. Verse 3. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Luke wrote this. Luke who traveled with Paul. You'll see Luke traveling with Paul on the missionary journeys later in the book of Acts, writing this this document. Perhaps as we've talked about part two of a defense briefing for Paul before the officials in Rome. And I wonder, Luke writes this down. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house and house, dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. And can you imagine Saul looking over Luke's shoulder while he's writing and saying, Hey, bud, could you soften that a bit? That's like the embarrassing stuff. That's like John saying he beat Peter to the tomb. I mean, do we have to have that here in the Scriptures? You know what's remarkable about Paul? He never dodged the issue. He was not a politician. (laughs) He never skirted the truth. He never denied his past. In fact, he upheld it as part of his witness. Acts 26, verse 10, he said, This is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Which, by the way, makes some people think that Paul was not only a Pharisee, but was on the Sanhedrin. Because he's casting a vote for the death of these Christians. And Paul says, as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. This is Paul's own testimony. He says the same thing, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He says it again, Galatians 1, 13. He writes about it to the Philippian church, Philippians 3, verse 6. And in all of these, he is not shying away from the past. He's not running from the past. You see, Paul didn't have to. Because, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Which means, Christian brothers and sisters, when you step into life with Jesus, when you are born again, the past is no longer an issue. The shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, let it go. You're a new creature in Jesus. You are a new creation. What about the shameful things that I did after I came to the Lord? What, you think His forgiveness isn't strong enough for that? Let it go. 
What I love about the Lord, and the Bible tells us this, His mercies are new every morning. That doesn't mean go out and live a life of wanton pleasure, set it up, and every morning go, "Ah, praise the Lord, it's a new day. But don't wear the stuff that the devil would try to make you wear. Shame, guilt, these are the things of the enemy. Freedom is of Christ. It is for freedom that Christ Jesus set us free. So don't be enslaved again to a yoke of of slavery. Paul understood that. Believer, do you understand that? And I would say to the unbeliever, don't you want that? I mean, why would anyone not want the kind of freedom and forgiveness from shame and guilt and all the past that Jesus offers? You don't have to carry that stuff anymore. Just let it go. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Maybe it's time to offload some of that garbage. Verse 4. Therefore, those who have been scattered, I love this, went about preaching the word. We're watching the Syrian crisis take place. Refugees from all, from, from Syria flooding into all countries in Europe. It's, it's horrible. It's tragic, especially for the children. I don't see them going around preaching the Quran. I don't see it as an opportunity to spread Islam, although there are some who probably will try to use it that way. But here's the baby church, driven out of their homes, driven out of Jerusalem that they loved, driven out into Judea and some into Samaria of all places, And everywhere they went, they preached the word. They made the most of the days, even though the days were evil. Which is what Paul tells us to do. Driven out. But man, I'll tell you, it always seems to be one of the best motivators of the church. Jesus is the key to unlocking scripture and igniting faith. But you know what? Persecution is often great fuel for the engine. On the other hand, every time the church has become prosperous... Every time the church gets powerful, every time the church becomes political, it loses effectiveness. Loses effectiveness. But in persecution, in our weakness, we are made strong. Hats off to Kim Davis. A name I think you should know. Why? She's the Rowan County Clerk of Moorhead, Kentucky. Last person on earth that you would think would spend six days in jail because she stood on the principles of Scripture. You know what the news media is saying now? They're dredging up her past. Well, she's had multiple divorces and, and, and children out of wedlock and her life, obviously. I mean, who is she? How dare she stand on some kind of biblical principle? How dare Saul Preach the gospel after what he did. How dare you presume to tell me about Jesus when I know how you used to live your life. See, that's the key. You're right, I used to. And that stuff doesn't chain me up anymore. I think, personally, Kim Davis is the perfect choice for someone to stand up for the church today. A woman whose life, I don't know the whole story, I don't know her personally, but apparently has some baggage, welcome to the world, and yet traded the baggage in for faithfulness to Jesus, 
And he's just standing up. And of course, even Christians, so-called, in the news are making light of her, saying she's foolish, saying she's just an ideologue who's going to just get herself thrown back in prison. I'm, th- I'm thinking field trip. You know what Paul wrote? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Brothers and sisters, don't you think for a minute that you can't be an effective witness for Jesus because you have too much baggage. First, you let the stuff go. And secondly, you open your mouth and proclaim Jesus. You're not proclaiming you. You're proclaiming Jesus and what He's done in you and through you and for you. Praise God. You're weak. He's strong. You're foolish. He's wise. You're a mess. He's clean. Paul said, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, bring it on, with distresses, I added the bring it on, that's not actually in there, (laughs) with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then what? He is strong. I am strong because of Christ. Who strengthens me? So verse 5. <laughs> Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. By the way, this is the first man. Okay, We've talked a little bit about the baby. Now we get to man number one of the three men and the baby. The first man is Philip. And watch how they interact with the baby, the church. Here goes Philip. He heads down to Samaria. Samaria is north of Jerusalem, but even though he's going north, he goes down to Samaria because you always come down from Jerusalem. And you always go up to Jerusalem. That's the way, that's the lay of the land. So he goes from Jerusalem down to Samaria to the north and began proclaiming Christ to them. And let me just say, you're going to see this two or three more times. This is what Philip does. It's just what he does. Philip, the first man. And we're told the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. He was performing? I don't like that translation. The word is poieo in the Greek and it literally means bringing forth. It's just the signs he was bringing forth. It's the things he was doing in the name of Jesus. He wasn't a street performer. But verse 7 says, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. I like that, that the lame are healed. That means there's hope for me. (laughs) So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now here's Philip, the first man. But he was the second diakonos. Remember? In the list of the seven, back in chapter 6, they had the food distribution problem we've been talking about, and so they called out seven people, seven men. And the first was Stephen. And the second is Philip. It's important to know this. Philip was not an apostle. Not among those who had traveled with Jesus. In fact, because of his Greek name, he was probably a Hellenistic Jew. That is a, a cutting-edge uh, cultural Jew. He was into the Greek culture, part of that, but became a Christian through his Judaism. And so here's Philip, who's just a servant. Just a servant. He was moving chairs around in the church before the persecution hit. 
waiting on the widow's food distribution before the persecution hit. And now, Stephen, this simple servant, is manifesting great power. Bringing forth great power. Again, he's not a street performer, but he attracts one. Both Stephen and Philip were ordinary deacons who never made elder. You know that the whole idea of the office of deacon is not a stepping stone to becoming an elder. You know that, right? You know that being a shepherd in the church is not the highest calling in the church, it's probably the lowest. And here are these guys, Stephen and Philip, are just guys. But they can't keep silent about Jesus. They are proclaiming Christ. Stephen now is proclaiming Christ with the angels. But here's Philip, who's proclaiming Christ wherever he goes because the Lord calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And it is never about your role, it's about your response. Why am I not doing more in my life? Why are you listening to the Lord? What has He called you to do? Do it. Boy, told me to vacuum after church on Sundays. Do it! With all your heart as unto the Lord. Right. Call me to send people cards when they get sick. Do it! As unto the Lord. Yeah, but it's so ordinary. Yeah. It is. But He makes the ordinary extraordinary. The only question we have to answer is, am I responding to His call on my life? I don't have to answer, is Jackie Shorthouse responding to His call on her life? Look at her. No. No. All I have to do is answer, what about me, Lord? Am I listening to the Lord? Am I doing what You've called me to do, Lord? I am? Great. I'm not? Tell me. Show me what to do. Jesus said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says truly twice, it's like extra true, right? He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. Greater works than these he will do. Who will do? The shepherds and pastors of the church. No. He who believes in me. Do you believe in Jesus? Guess what? You can do greater works than he did. And of course we see Philip doing mighty works. Jesus is now at work in and through Philip. Watch Philip, because he's just a disciple like you, like me, who is faithfully aware of the Spirit of Christ navigating his life. He ends up in Samaria. What do you do in Samaria? You preach Jesus. You proclaim Christ. And don't miss the outcome of this ministry. Verse 8. There was much rejoicing in that city. And it's not much rejoicing like Monty Python. Yay. No, it was real rejoicing. True joy. It's the kind of rejoicing that the angels had at the birth. Remember that? Luke chapter 2 verse 10. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. That verse alone should change the faces of some people who go to church. It's good news of great joy. So tell your face. John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy be made full. 
Jesus said in John 16, 24, Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. Are you joyful? Do you find your life overflowing with joy or is it overflowing with cynicism? Or overflowing with grumpiness? Or fear? Or self-doubt? Are you joyful? I want to confess something to you. Sunday morning was heavy for me. And from time to time, it gets heavy for me. And I'm sure it does for some of you as well. I don't know if there's been a Sunday recently. Maybe it was this this Sunday when you walk out of here going, Whoa, man, we live in dark times. This is tough stuff. I, I don't enjoy the culture wars in our country. I really don't. I don't enjoy talking about politics. I don't enjoy calling out warnings from the wall. I don't like the idea of being a prophet of doom. Hey, things are dark, and it's just going to get darker. (laughs) Cheryl knows this. I can't even tell you how many times I'm coming up to a teaching. All I want to do is just talk about Jesus and grace. But i got to talk about truth also. And we have to deal with righteousness and sin. You know what the Lord reminded me of this week in in the midst of whatever we are studying, whatever the Bible brings to us, whatever challenges we might have in our own lives, don't forget the joy. He said, he said, Rick, don't forget the joy. I love when he calls me by name. Don't forget the joy. I came that you might have your joy made full. And Paul would later say, Paul, whose life was a hot mess, by the way, when he started following Jesus... Absolute despair if you were putting yourself in his shoes, and yet he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. Which, when we were kids, we used to sing as a round, obnoxiously, as loudly as we could, laughing our heads off. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. Rejoice. And we just go round and round, Philippians 4 4, and that's exactly what the Lord desires that you rejoice in the Lord always. Not some ways. Not. Occasionally, always. And Jude 24 says He's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. All Philip, the first man here, does is preach Jesus and heal and restore and cast out demons and there was great rejoicing in the town. Second man, Simon. Verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city. And astonishing, King James says bewitching, but astonishing is probably a better translation there. Astonishing the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, that is to Simon, saying, this man is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Tradition calls him Simon Magus, or Magus, because of the magic. The people nicknamed him Magus Dynamistheus. Hey, there goes Magus Dynamus Theos. That mega dynamic magic man. 
And Magus Dynamis Theos is just the great power of God. The Samaritans were calling this guy by that name. Why? He was impressive. He was pulling off some serious tricks. Now when you read this, you might ask the question, did he really have powers? Or is this just kind of a flim-flam artist? Is he just engaged in magic tricks? Personally, I assume it was a sham. Because when true power comes along, he's impressed. He wants to know how he can get in on that action. He sees Philip and he's like, okay, I've never done that. But he's pulling off this stuff. You know, there are all kinds of illusions in this world. There are magicians. There are the David Copperfields, and we all watch them on TV and go, wow, he made that car disappear on TV. Ooh. You know, we see what's, I forget the guy's name, but he's kind of the street magician who walks around and he levitates. What's his name? David Blaine. Freaks me out. He's got that kind of dark look. He's going to levitate now, watch. And you look and you go, how? How's he doing this? Well, there are tricky ways to do it. And it's also possible there are dark magic demonic ways to do it. Both are realities, gang. Both take place in this world. Some are just ruses of magicians who have practiced their art and others are legitimately dark and demonic. But remember this, Satan is just a counterfeiter. He never is an original. He is a counterfeit artist par excellence. Remember the magicians of Egypt? Back in Exodus chapter 7 and 8, Aaron throws down his staff. It becomes a serpent. What did the court magicians do? They threw down their staffs and they became serpents. How's that possible? Trained snakes, maybe? Or demonic magic, possibly? We know that Aaron's staff ate up the other two, which I think is so cool. (laughs) Who's in charge now? What? God turned the Nile to blood. The Egyptian magicians turned water into blood too. Pharaoh didn't know. They had little packets of jello mix. You know, they made it work. <laughs> Moses called out frogs. And the magic men replicated that as well. Although once the frogs are coming out of the Nile, it's not really hard to say, watch, presto, Ooh, look, more frogs. I did that. Counterfeit. Darkness, it's always that way with Satan. But listen, whether it's actual power or just tricks, the work of the Spirit is never sleight of hand. The work of the Spirit is always about raising hands to the glory of Jesus. The work of the Spirit is about the Gospel and about salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Philip's here. He's preaching He's doing great things. Simon, wow, he's impressed. Does Simon get saved? Read on. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Hey, by the way, do you think maybe they had already had a preview of coming attractions? I think maybe word had already spread from a little town called Sikar in Samaria about this man named Jesus and a woman's life who was radically changed and the entire city got saved, John chapter 4. And now here comes Philip and the word has already been given. 
And Philip starts doing what he's doing and talking about Jesus. And they're, they're like, I'm assuming, oh, Jesus, Jesus. So it's true. So he's just preaching what had already been perhaps revealed. Preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus. And they were being baptized, men and women alike. Oh good, verse 13, even Simon himself believed. Yay. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. As would David Copperfield be. Or David Blaine. You can levitate, but can you save a life? Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. I love that. Because this is the same John who along with his brother James had a bad reaction to a Samaritan city that was not welcoming to Jesus. This is the same John. Luke chapter 9, verse 54 says, When his disciples, James and John, saw this, saw that this city was not welcoming to the Lord, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Little Elijah action. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Boy, Jesus just calls it out. This is, this is demonic. This attitude is not of me. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. They didn't understand the intentions of Jesus. That they themselves would later bring the gospel to the Samaritans. And listen, burning down a city would have been counterproductive to the cause. I mean, can you imagine... If Jesus allowed them to burn down that one city for inhospitality, and now they're in Samaria preaching Jesus, I don't think it would have gone over real well. Be careful the bridges you burn in the name of Jesus. Be careful the attacks that you take yourself in the name of Jesus. Anything you do in the name of Jesus, you better be certain it's what Jesus wants to do. It's what He Himself would do. Well, verse 14, then, so Peter and John, they go down there. Verse 15, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had, for He had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. I love these conundrums. I love these places in Scripture that make us slam on the brakes and go, What? Wait a minute. I thought the promise was that if we were baptized in the name of Jesus, we'd receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said it, Acts 2.38, it's Scripture, so it has to be that way. Right? Do we receive the, ba- the, the, the Holy Spirit when we're baptized in the name of Jesus? Yes. yes. Acts 2.38. Repent. Every one of you. And believe. Be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Done deal. So why hadn't it happened here? Why, if that's the standard, is the tradition not being followed in this town in Samaria? Listen, a couple of things to understand here. One thing, the wording is difficult. 
Luke says in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. Well, that sounds like the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happened in Acts chapter 2. Right? Doesn't it? The Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them. It's that Greek word epi, which is, which is a, a power of the Spirit. The dunamis coming upon. And that's coming upon believers who already have the indwelling Holy Spirit as the apostles did. Are you with me? So it sounds like perhaps they just didn't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Peter and John had to come down from Jerusalem, lay hands on them so they might have the baptism of the Holy Spirit separate from their baptism in the name of Jesus. Perhaps. And yet... Luke also writes that when they prayed for Him, they received not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they received the Holy Spirit. He says that twice. The implication is that they did not have the Holy Spirit. They were baptized by faith in the name of Jesus, came up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit did not come and indwell them. Or the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out on them as in terms of power and and supernatural and, and all of that. What's going on here? It's a really good question. We'll come back to it. Verse 18. <laughs> now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Okay, now, right there, what does that sound like? Baptism of the Spirit or the Spirit Himself? It sounds like the Spirit itself. Now, I'm not trying to read anything into it, but... He saw that the Spirit was bestowed, right, uh, by the laying on of their hands. He offered them money. He's a good magician. That's what magicians do. Hey, I like that trick you do. Can I buy it off you? Verse 19. He says, give me this authority as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know that there is a word in our language, it actually comes from Old English, that comes right from this. It is a word for trying to buy your way in, and the word is, get ready for this, simony. Simony, from Simon. That's where, where the word comes from. And in the Catholic Church of the 13th century, the word simony was used literally for those who, quote, came to describe the buying or selling of a church office or ecclesiastical preferential treatment. There were cardinals in Catholic tradition who became cardinals because their parents were rich. Did you know there was a pope that was seven years old? Because his parents bought the office and the church wanted the money? Let me just say as a side note, you ain't buying anything at the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Your giving is between you and the Lord. Don't tell me about it because I'm not doing anything for a little extra sum in the offering box. But the church did. It was simony. Lots of people still today think that salvation can be bought. I'll just purchase my salvation with good deeds. I'll just work a little harder. I'll be a philanthropist. Or religiosity. If I act just so, or do just this, or behave just this way. Some through famed signs and wonders. Now, I've told you before, I believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit are available and at work today in the world. I also know for a fact that there's an awful lot of speaking in tongues that is gibberish because people are feigning signs and wonders because they want to become or come across as religious, as more spiritual, and so they play the game. Well, which one is it, Rick? Well, I'm not the judge. 
That's between you and the Lord to know where you stand with the Lord and, and with the gifts of the Spirit. But gang, you can't buy your salvation no matter what you do. No matter how good you are, no matter what you contribute, you cannot buy your salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 Simon's trying to buy a little power here. Well, so did, didn't Simon get saved? Keep reading. 